Well, last week we focused on the theme of identity from Ephesians chapter 1. I'd encourage you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1 again as we look at the last half of that chapter and as we focus on power. Power is an interesting thing, but it's a fair question to ask, what exactly is it? I've been asking myself that question all this week as I've been preparing uh, for this. I, I think of how people pursue power, they grasp for it. I think it's something that is often misunderstood in many ways about exactly what it is. Uh, here's a few quotes that maybe relate to that. Uh, Elizabeth Gilbert uh, said this, I met a, an old lady once, almost 100 years old, and she told me there are only two questions that human beings have ever fought over all through history. How much do you love me and who's in charge? Could be true, I don't know. Maybe those are uh, important questions. I don't know if they're the only things that people have asked, but fair, fair enough. Abraham Lincoln was credited with saying this, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. Not so dissimilar to that, uh, Plato uh, said, the measure of a man is what he does with power. We see that over and over again, don't we? Political leaders, we know, flex to have it give them position in the world. We I've seen that now in the U.S. with the government shutdown as two sides of the Senate can't agree, and so it all comes to a grinding halt, all because of different aspects of power. Uh, we've seen in the news in this last month of, of Trump and Kim Jong-un bragging about the size of the button on their desk, and uh, who has the most power in that way? It's sort of funny, but not really, when you think of the implications of it. But it's true, right? Like, we, we struggle with power in different ways. We flex it in different ways. We exercise it in different ways. Most people feel that they have very little power. And yet, here's the thing. We need to see this this morning as this section is about Paul expressing how he prays for these people. We need to see that prayer is powerful. Why is prayer powerful? Because prayer is access to the greatest power ever known in Jesus Christ. So let's step into this text and let's read some of Ephesians 1, uh, starting in the first half. I'm going to look at it in kind of two sections. And I want to just, first of all, look at 15 to 19, the beginning of chapter, uh, verse 19, and, and reflect on this idea of power through this text. So Paul, continuing from what we were speaking about last week, where he spoke about identity and how God is a God who blesses. God is a God who uh, marks us. God is a God who has given us this seal through his Holy Spirit. God is a God who has chosen us in the heavenly realms before the beginning of time. And so all of these things is what Paul has been talking about. And now he comes to this part of the text and he says, For this reason, for all the reasons of all these things that I've been speaking before that, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, I keep asking that God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So Paul again in this beginning prayer, he starts by praise and thanksgiving, a really appropriate and a really good thing to do as we pray, as we posture ourselves before the living God, the all-powerful God, and we start with praise and adoration and giving thanks for what he has done. It's exactly what Paul does here, is acknowledging that and praising God. 
uh, essential to our prayer life. And then Paul says how he is praying for the spirit of wisdom and revelation. I like that. He's praying for the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Why? So that they will know God better. He's praying for an intimate relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's praying that the eyes of their hearts will be opened, that the eyes of their heart will be enlightened. The song that's been going through my my head all week is, Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord. That old chorus, uh, I was going to sing it for you, but I won't. Um, But but this idea that the eyes, that our hearts, this, this place of understanding God, our souls, that it would be opened up and be enlightened, and that we would actually be able to see with new eyes. That's what Paul is praying for for these people. He says, I pray that you would be enlightened. I pray that you would know more and more about who God is. And he says three things. That they may know the hope that is found in him, that they may know the riches of his glorious inheritance, and that they may know the incomparable great power for those who believe. So I want to look at each of these just briefly, the the hope, the inheritance, and the power that Paul talks about here. So what does hope look like? Hope is a rare commodity for many people. It was a rare commodity in the ancient world. They had fate, determinism, and despair that were pretty predominant in their culture as their lives were very difficult and oppressive. People today, especially those who struggle with mental illness, as I know many do, hope is a very elusive thing. It's something that you sort of take for granted when you have it, and when it's gone, it is the thing that you search for so desperately. It's what keeps us going. Hope is incredibly powerful. And God's work in Christ addresses so many of the things that we struggle with hopelessness in, in terms of meaningless, the meaninglessness, the problem of evil and death. And so God has created this bridge from no hope to hope in his creation of life in the midst of death. And so hope is this life-changing experience for us. Having hope is power, whatever the source might be. So imagine how much power there is in having hope in the one who has all power in all things for all generations. That is the ultimate hope that Paul is speaking of here. Recently I was reading a story or an article about our, uh, some missionaries and some of our MB churches from our denomination that serve in the Ukraine. And it was written by uh, someone from MB Mission who is writing about what is happening in eastern Ukraine as the war goes on there in that part of the world, often forgotten, but a war that's been going on for over three years. And a number of our Mennonite Brethren churches in that region have been actually shuttling food and medicine and supplies to churches and people in the war zone week after week after week, and they've been doing that for a couple of years now. Operating with great faith, and trying to bring hope to this place that has been so ravaged by war. So it says, and I'll read a few uh, paragraphs from this article. It says, Explosions and gunfire have wreaked havoc on parts of this country where the streets are littered with fragments of painted walls from kindergartens and schools. This has become everyday life for parts of eastern Ukraine. And after three years of war in the region, the collapsed economy has left hundreds of thousands of people displaced, unemployed, and unable to provide for themselves or their children. However, in the midst of the clamor of artillery, there are sounds of hope. It speaks of one woman, Nelia, is her name. Admitted, she admitted that she thought that there was no more good people. She had lost all hope. But she saw Christians from some of our MB churches daily going close to the front lines to help and bring the basic supplies. 
She was intrigued by what motivated these people and what gave them this kind of courage, hope, and faith. And so her and her daughter and her younger sister began attending a Bible study to see where this hope came from, from this group. The story of Sergei, who also was displaced by this same war, and after being invited to one of these churches, he hesitantly went because of, again, seeing their courage and faith and how they provided food, clothing, and this gospel of peace that they spoke about. Eventually, Sergei became baptized because of this hope that he found in Jesus Christ. You see, hope was louder and more powerful than war. Because hope is power. So what about inheritance? Paul speaks in this chapter and in this text that we just read about inheritance. And he prays that they would see the inheritance that they have. You know, as as Christians, we're called to live fully present today. But we also do that by living with our understanding of the future inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ. This future promise. We live in in terms of the kingdom of God, of the present, the now, and the not yet. We get expressions and experience and a glimpse of what God has in store for us in the kingdom of God and our inheritance in him. And yet we live with this future look all the time. It's one thing that's unique about the Christian faith is that we always have this tilt towards the future. We're always called to look towards the future, not to the past. In fact, if you look in the Old Testament and you see the prophets who would often call the people of Israel back to God and they would cry out and they would say, remember, remember what God has done. Why did they say remember? Not so that they could go back and live in the past. They would remember so that they could remember God's faithfulness in the midst of hopelessness so that they were able to continue on and to carry forward into an unknown future. That's why they were called to remember. So there's something unique about the Christian faith that we are always called forward, not back. And that is the hope that we have in Christ. That is the forward-leaning, the future-oriented kingdom of God when Christ returns and brings all things to completion of how we live with that anticipation, which is why we're called as as living as aliens and foreigners in this land, because we live with that future-focused orientation of our inheritance. It changes how you live today. It's powerful. So, Paul is praying that they would know this, that they would understand this, that they would see this inheritance that they have, that they would claim it, even in part, and out of that, that they would live in such a way that it would give them courage and faith to continue walking with Jesus, whatever it was that they were facing. So this power of inheritance and living out of that is so important that Paul speaks to as he calls us to live a life of hope. In the ESV translation of verse 18 and 19, it says it this way. It says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, is what Paul prays for, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? This beautiful picture of Paul praying for and asking these people to reflect on this. What is the hope? What, is, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power? He not only wants them to reflect on, the, on these things, but he's praying for them. He's saying, Lord, would you open their hearts to see this? And I think for us today, this is so true. We get immobilized in the things that are going on in our world. We get focused in on the things that are kind of all around us, and our eyes get turned down, and we, we forget the bigger picture that we are part of. And life circumstances kind of press in on us and the, 
The stresses of each day and each week, they kind of immobilize us at times and we lose sight of these things. And that's why Paul is praying and he says, Lord Jesus, I, I pray that you would open the eyes of their heart. I pray that you would open their eyes, enlighten them, help them to see this. My encouragement to you today and my question is, do you see this? Do you know this hope? Do you know this promise? Do you live out of this? We need to continually lift our eyes and have our eyes lifted by others in order to see this day to day, in order to keep walking. Let's uh, read the last part of this text and and go to the end of chapter 1. Starting in 19 where Paul continues, he says, that power, what he's just been talking about, is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. That's a pretty amazing statement. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So here, Paul gets to the core of of what this power is all about in Jesus. You know, power, as I think about it, and even as you look up some definitions about it, it's it's a combination of forces and movement. Forces and movement that cause and influence something to change or someone to change or circumstances to change. That is power. Ephesians focuses more on words for power than any other text in the New Testament. And we need to remind ourselves that power in itself is not evil. As sometimes we hear about it or it's portrayed in that way. But power really is neutral in its moral assessment as it can be used and leveraged for good and it can be used and leveraged for evil. So Paul is saying, do you understand the power that you have here? But power or authority is one of the most important and common themes in all of Scripture. I mean, think about this. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, right at the very beginning of the Bible, the very first words of Scripture are probably one of the most profound statements of power that you will ever hear. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's power. One commentator or one uh, author who's written about this in terms of organization, Les Stolke, he, he says that most of what follows, you could say, is about how God handles his own authority or power, how he delegates his authority or power to others, and how he wants us to use this authority or power. Throughout all of Scripture, we see power referenced in all kinds of ways. The Christian faith is, is really a power religion in many ways. Maybe not in the way that it's sometimes portrayed or used in terms of the health and wealth gospel in that aspect, but it is a power religion because of Jesus Christ and who he is and what God has done. It is unmistakable. As you go ahead and further on into the New Testament in the Matthew 28 and when Jesus gives the Great Commission, he says, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And so he takes and he claims and he declares this power and authority that he has as God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he says, because of all this authority, I give you this authority to take and go and proclaim this gospel to all nations. It's an incredible account of power and authority as we read that. And if you look with that lens through all of Scripture, you see it over and over and over again. So tonight as we gather at the prayer summit again, we access the greatest power ever known. 
as we pray to our Lord Jesus Christ, as it says here in this text, this amazing passage where it says how he raised Christ from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. That is a very all-encompassing statement of authority and power. It's like Paul is stacking on terms upon terms here about rule, authority, power, dominion, title, to emphasize that Christ's rule is total over them all. That whatever power exists, Christ is greater. It's unmistakable. So as we gather to pray, that is who we are in, who we pray to. That is being in Christ, this person who is all power. Do we live that way? Do we understand that? Do we walk in that truth? You know, the focus and concern for spiritual power comes through again and again through Ephesians. And it comes to, in many ways, a culmination, if you know Ephesians 6, that talks about the armor of God. And it talks about this spiritual reality and this spiritual battle. And yet what's, what's interesting as you look even at the New Testament is, is that the enemy and, the, and Satan's demonic forces are referenced and referred to, but they're always fallen people, a defeated people, a defeated force that only has any power that is allowed for by Christ. That Christ is supreme, that Christ is ruler over all, that Christ has authority, that Christ has overcome. And we don't have to live in fear, but that we can live in power as we put our lives in Jesus. Then it has these verses that Paul speaks about the church. It says, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We've been saying that this series is about the mystery of the church. And in every chapter, Paul, he's referencing and he's speaking to this corporate body and this body of the church. And he says this church is the beautiful bride of Christ. And this church has more power than it ever would realize. If it would just claim its power and embrace this power and recognize that we together through the Spirit of God and through the gifts of God that he has given the body of Christ, as we'll see later on in Ephesians 4, that there is a remarkable power that is evident, that is available, that is there inherent and within the body of Christ, the church, because of Jesus. So we see in these verses here that he, again, is, is kind of setting up and identifying the church in Christ. It's actually a, a statement more about who Jesus is than the church is, but we are the bride of Christ, and so we gain access to this power because of Jesus, this fullness. So Paul, he uses this ecclesia word, and he talks about the church and how Christ is the head of all things for the benefit of the church. And you know, no other text speaks more specifically and continuously about the theology of the church again and has such a high regard as Ephesians. And here again we see this body metaphor and the fullness metaphor about the completeness that is found in Christ. In Colossians 2 verse 9 and 10 it it says it this way, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. So Christ is the place where God's presence, power, and salvation are known. And the church draws from this fullness. So one of the primary, again, ways that we access this power is through prayer. Through prayer. There's a story that I was reminded of as I was preparing for this. And many of you would have heard some of this story from New York City many years ago. If you remember how 
In the 1990s, the crime rate in New York City plummeted drastically, and people were trying to assess, well, what was it that actually caused that? And the mayor at the time, together with the police uh, chief and the police force, they decided on a strategy that they would actually target all of the kind of the low crime like graffiti. And so they had this massive movement and strategy that happened that as, as soon as any graffiti was painted on the trains or on buildings or so on, they had teams that would go out, paint over it, those trains would be taken offline right away, repainted, and they just didn't allow any kind of graffiti, and they took care of kind of the small-level crime. And people said, look at that. It was amazing the way that that worked in terms of crime overall dropping drastically. Now, there's some truth to that, but there's other parts of that story. 2010, there was a group of us, uh, many brethren pastors, who were in New York City, and we were meeting with some of the church leaders in New York City, and we were uh, talking to them about a prayer movement that has been going on in New York City for a number of decades. And it started in the late 1980s, and it began to gain momentum into the early 1990s, where all of these churches and pastors and denominations started to come together in these prayer summits, and they started to pray together collectively, repenting, and and praying for more unity, and praying for this power of Jesus Christ, and this Unity of prayer, this movement that happened in New York City, and there's, a, there's books that have been written about this in the 1990s, is remarkable. And it was this overwhelming sense of the church coming together and claiming the power of Jesus at a very unique time and, and breaking down the walls, the barriers, the obstacles that so often separate churches. And so as these people that were hosting us in this visit, they, they walked us through some of that story. You start to see the other side of the story of what's going on in the spiritual realm. Yeah, there are things that political leaders and people do and they matter and they make a difference and they're important. But then there are these things that the church does that only the church can do as it just comes together on its knees to pray. And they gather and they pray and they repent and they confess and they draw together in unity of people of all denominations and all different backgrounds and where there is maybe conflict in the past and division and competition, and now they just come together and they pray. And they say, Lord Jesus, would you do something different in this city? And he did. The crime rate has never been so low in New York City. It's a prayer movement that continues to this day. It's a prayer movement that is referenced and modeled in other cities around the world, and it has a remarkable impact. So why don't we see and experience and feel this kind of power maybe in the ways that we would like to or sometimes the ways that we see it in Scripture? You know, power can be explosive and fast or power can also be slow and steady. I think we typically like the explosive kind. Some of you know that. You're gearheads. You like the big engines, the cars. You like the explosive power. Yeah, my little six-cylinder isn't like that. Um, you know, God can do that. God can do the explosive kind. I've experienced that. I've seen God at work. I've seen miracles happen that are remarkable. I've seen God transform and change people and situations suddenly. We see stories in Scripture. You know of stories around the world. We see and experience that in different ways, often from a distance. We want more of that kind. Um, But the reality is, is that oftentimes the power that we experience is what I might call the slow power. Kind of the slow and steady power of perseverance and faith, continuation. I said earlier that power is this combination of force and movement over a long time. 
When I think of that, the images that come to my mind is I think of things like the meandering of rivers. I've talked about that in the past. There's a big word for that. Anybody remember what that is? Bluvio geomorphology. But it's where the movement of water starts to carve out the banks and it starts to make rivers kind of curve and turn and eventually they form oxbow lakes and it shapes it and molds it. You don't see that day to day. If you go to a river, you don't actually see the riverbank changing, but it is constantly. You see it over the course of hundreds of years, actually. Or you think of the impact of water on rock. You look at rocks in a river or in an ocean, and you think, man, rocks are just immovable. Rocks are so impenetrable. They are so hard. Like, you can't change them. You can't break them. Well, water will do devastating to rocks. As it just continually washes over, as it continually kind of dribbles on, as whatever the case may be, water can completely transform a rock. Or you think of the work of glaciers that happened centuries ago, and you think of the impact as it scars our land, and you fly in an airplane, and you look how receding glaciers have just kind of raked the soil in different ways. And it's an incredible picture of power. Do you see it when you go visit a glacier, some of the glacier fields? You don't see anything. Like, there's nothing going on here. Oh, yeah, there is. I think that's oftentimes the kind of power that we experience in our lives. That Jesus gives us the power to persevere. This this transformation of chipping away over long periods of time, of Jesus giving us the strength to never give up, to keep going, that there is this cumulative value that happens of investing small amounts of time in certain activities over the long haul. We know that in other areas of life, right? I mean, just think of exercise. Think of investing, finances. Think of parenting. Think of developing friendships and relationships with other people. Those kinds of things don't change or transform or happen in a one-time kind of incident. They happen of small deposits, day after day, year after year, continually being faithful, putting time in, investing effort, investing money, whatever the case may be. The same is true if you think about our our faith and different activities related to that. You know, our time alone with God, church attendance, praying with family, a small group study. I mean, the reality is, is if you miss one of those on any given day, you won't really see the effect of that, will you? You don't notice the difference. But it has a a cumulative effect that happens over the course of time, over the course of years, over the course of a long period of time of God instilling his power at work within us. In these subtle ways. You know, we we rarely see the immediate consequences, but the thing that we do see is that neglect also has a cumulative effect. And so a parent who hasn't spent time with their children can't suddenly make it up by like, you know, three weeks together of intensive time after ten years of not being there. It doesn't work that way. We need the investment, small investments of these forces that just sort of plod along and you sometimes think, does this make any difference? And it's Jesus who gives us, by his Holy Spirit, the power to continue on, the power to persevere, the power to plod on when it feels like nothing is changing. And yet God gives us that ability through his Holy Spirit to walk us through these things and it changes us. It's powerful. Reading an article also this week, by Gil Duick, who some of you will know, now the academic dean at Columbia Bible College. And I love how he describes some things that relate to this in his article. And he described two words that both matter in terms of God's work and power in our lives. And 
how they actually work together. And the one word was development, and it speaks to how we slowly, uh, we develop in slow, predictable ways, just as God created us to develop physically, socially, emotionally, and even spiritually. And he talked about how we move from simple stages of life to more complex questions and experiences. It's just sort of incremental steps towards a more durable and mature faith. And how God and his powers at work within us, it still is at the center of this work, but it may just not seem as evident as other things. The second word that he talked about was transformation. One that we maybe more typically associate with God's power and presence in our lives. More of the sudden stuff. And it typically speaks to more radical change in us or in the circumstances or in the culture. But what he was arguing is that these two, again, typically happen together at the same time. And Gil likes a phrase that he actually puts the two concepts together called transformational development. As he works with young adults, he, he sees this all the time. As I observe people in this church who've been walking with God for decades, I see this all the time. And transformational development is, is this slow and steady growth towards maturity punctuated by transformational moments of encounter with the Spirit of God. So our prayer as a church is that you would continue to persevere in the small things, these small deposits where God is at work in your lives in more ways than you will ever imagine. And that as you faithfully walk with God and as you come before Him and as you pray and as you seek His heart, that you would also have those transformational encounters where you get those moments where you see and experience God in ways that are remarkable, that are different, that are unmistakable, that you go, that was something different. And encounters and experiences that you have start to shape us and change us, but they go alongside that steady, slow power of transformation that God is already doing in our life. So Ephesians, we see it begins and it ends with prayer. In fact, Ephesians is filled with prayer all the way through. Oh, that we would be a people of prayer. That we would continue to grow in that, in perseverance, in obedience, and in faithfulness. As was mentioned tonight, we have the prayer summit, which focuses on our, our three congregations and how God would use us as a church. This coming week, starting today, in our Canadian conference, there's a national week of prayer. And in the recent email that I just sent out this week, there's a link to that where we can pray together with our national church family and pray for things that are highlighted there. In a week and a half from now, a week from tomorrow, there is a group of people, of dozens of people from our city that are actually going to the north, uh, to a lake in north for four days for a prayer summit. And from our, our, our staff here, uh, Brian and Harry and I are going to go and be a part of that. And it, it's praying for the city of Saskatoon. It's praying for our city, that God would transform and do something unique in our city, that his power would be present. So would you join us in these opportunities for prayer? as we access the greatest power that has ever been known. Would you stand with me and worship team, would you come up to lead us in response in song? And stay standing after my prayer as we sing together, but allow me to just lead us in prayer to the one who is all-powerful. So Heavenly Father, we thank you, we worship you, we praise you. Thank you for texts like this that remind us of who you are and that our identity is found in you, Lord Jesus, and that you are the one who is above all, that you are far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And so, Lord Jesus, we praise you and we thank you for that truth.
I pray, Lord, for each one here that for those who are struggling with even that slow power of walking in faith and in perseverance, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you, would you strengthen them, Lord? Would you give them hope for today and an understanding of their inheritance for the future? And God, that in that and through that, that you would help them to continue to put these small deposits of faith, these action steps of faith, that they would persevere in order to walk with you and to trust in you. And God, I also pray that you would break into our lives at different times and that you would do remarkable transformational things that would show your power in unique and new ways, Lord. Help us to walk in faith, in obedience, and in expectation. So we thank you, Lord Jesus, and we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.